Good afternoon. I'm Hussain Haqqani. I'm director of the South and Central Asia program here at Hudson Institute. Uh, this afternoon, we have uh, as our guest Dr. Christine Fair, who has written a wonderful new book called Fighting to the End, The Pakistan Army's Way of War. Um, Dr. Fair, for those of you who do not know her, uh, is an assist assistant professor at Georgetown University's Center for Peace and Security Studies program. Uh, she has in the past served as a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation, has been political officer to the UN Assistance Mission uh, in uh, uh, Afghanistan, uh, and has been a senior research associate with the United States Institute of Peace and the Center for Conflict Analysis and Prevention. Chris uh, did her PhD from the University of Chicago, uh, is proficient in Hindi, Urdu, and Punjabi. In fact, there are people who think that she is uh, too proficient uh, in Punjabi uh, um, uh, than, uh, than, than is necessary uh, for the function of her work. Um, <laughs> those, those of you who know anything about the Punjabi language, uh, you probably know uh, that Punjabi is the language in the world so the Punjabis claim, uh, that has the maximum number of swear words. Um, and, uh, and to be excessively proficient in that language is not necessarily uh, <laughs> a very necessary for security studies, although some people think it is an added bonus. Um, now, we at the Hudson Institute have been having several, there have been a spate of books about Pakistan and South Asia, and we are trying to cover as many of them in book talks as we can, uh, partly to introduce these books. Not everybody is able to read all the books, but it's good to have discussions. Uh, Pakistan, of course, is a subject close to my heart. Uh, and I recently started this spate of books, I think, by publishing a book myself. Christine's book is unique because the Pakistan army has been studied as an institution by several people. There are some good books out there. But they all have one basic weakness. They have all assumed that the Pakistan army is an army like the US army or the British army or for that matter even the Indian army. And so that has led people to totally ignore what those of us who are familiar with Pakistan would say is the ideological dimension of the Pakistan army's way of thinking. Um, and Christine has actually conducted deep analysis looking at Pakistan's history its portrayal by the army in its own literature. And it's very interesting to note that what is published in English and what is published in Urdu sometimes is not necessarily the same. Um, and then it, she also looks at the role of the army over the last six decades. Um, the biggest asset in this book, in my opinion, is Christine's hard work in looking at all the Pakistan army publications uh, going back about six decades to try and look into the strategic and ideological thinking of the army. And her core argument seems to be that despite the global information technology revolution, despite the fact that uh, alternative accounts of historic events are now available, uh, distorted facts, historical inaccuracies, and a conspiracy theory mindset prevails in Pakistan, and especially in uh, the ranks of its military. Uh, now, we all know, and as a Pakistani, I'm very aware of that fact, that Pakistan felt cheated about the terms of partition in 1947. Uh, it felt that uh, 
India accepted it with reluctance, but India accepted it. Pakistan on the other hand felt that it was incomplete. Uh, even Pakistan's founder Muhammad Ali Jinnah said that what he had received was quote unquote moth eaten Pakistan. So what Pakistan, uh, what, what, what Pakistan had been envisioned was not delivered. Uh, and the army uh, which became important right uh, especially by 1951 when its first uh, Muslim indigenous chief took over from 1947 to 51 Pakistan had British, Britishers serving as army chiefs. Uh, once Ayub Khan had taken over as Pakistan's army chief, the army started relying on Islam to unite the country uh, and to overcome ethnic diversity. By then the Bengalis in particular were very aware of the fact that their language Bengali was not even recognized as an official language even though they were the numerical majority in the country. And Ayub came up with what is now known as the ideology of Pakistan to rally the citizens and muster support for the army. And that is why Pakistan is one of those unique countries where if a television channel says something critical of the army or the ISI, uh, they are immediately accused of treason instead of uh, the charges being uh, put to some kind of examination or investigation. You mentioned the ISI. I mentioned the ISI and the Michael <laughs> <laughs> So much for conspiracy theories. Christine's argument is that the Pakistan army's discourse in its publications portrays India as an aggressor and argues that India has initiated all wars against Pakistan even where the historic evidence proves otherwise. They also point to India's growing military capabilities as a sign that India wishes to destroy Pakistan once it achieves superiority. Uh, they have maintained alliances with the United States, China and seek sought support from Saudi Arabia and the relationship with the US has enabled them to have the military capability that makes them feel that they can eventually take on India. Uh, although the portrayal of the United States in Pakistan military literature always portrays the Pakistani military as uh, uh, the United States as consistently duplicitous and as uh, someone who has not honored their agreements with Pakistan. Um, so if, pe if people want to understand anti-Americanism in Pakistan and also anti-Americanism within the ranks of the military, it's important to evaluate and analyze uh, the literature of the Pakistani army. Uh, I'll let Chris speak uh, and explain her book and her thesis. All I have to say is I'm surprised that in this great superpower, nobody this did this exercise way back in 1960 or 1961 or 62, because if they had done it then, maybe, maybe we would have been spared a lot of angst and anxiety in the US-Pakistan relationship. But then we didn't have anybody who was sufficiently proficient in Urdu and Punjabi to be able to understand what was being thought, what was being said. There is a consistency to the Pakistan army's narrative, which is why the title of the book is Fighting to the End, meaning Changes in global realities, changes in the region, changes within Pakistan. The very fact that Pakistan is now half of what it used to be in 1947, none of them have affected the core thinking of the Pakistan army. The literature, if you read through it, it's a narrative that starts somewhere in the 1950s and it's the same narrative. Pakistan constantly under attack. Everybody in the world wants Pakistan to be finished off. 
Islam is the only anchor. Pakistan army is the only institution that can save Pakistan. Civilians, totally incompetent. India, uh, uh, very predatory. Um, America, totally unreliable, etc., etc. Uh, as I see it, Chris is actually making a case for how the US must stop looking at uh, Pakistan as a country that it can transform, or it, an army it can transform by giving assistance, and especially military assistance. Uh, if somebody thinks of a rivalry in civilizational and ideological terms, that ideology has to change before any amount of money that you dump on them is going to make them change their actions. Uh, the US has intervened many times to try and uh, act as a, some kind of a mediator. There was, at least in the 50s and the 60s, this assumption that if we solve the Kashmir problem, India and Pakistan will stop being rivals, just as there was a time when it was thought that if only uh, more development assistance was put in uh, in East Pakistan to make East Pakistan and West Pakistan feel comfortable with one another, they'll all stay together. That's an inability to understand the dynamic of uh, ideology at play within the minds of the Pakistan army. So Chris, with that introduction of your book by me, please feel welcome to explain your own book. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome Chris Fair, author of Fighting to the End. I'm not sure if, is my, I guess my mic is working, isn't it? Um, is that projector working, by the way? Yeah, great. So first of all, I wanted to thank Aparna Pandey and Ambassador Hussain Haqqani for having me here. And I also want to point out that Ambassador Haqqani and I, I think he started writing his book a year after I had started writing, and his book came out a year before mine. So he is the maestro of, of writing books. And I didn't want to read his book until mine was all the way done. Once I read his book, I realized that our two arguments very much dovetail. The chapters that I write about U.S.-Pakistan relations are almost like a Cliff Notes uh, version of um, Ambassador Haqqani's superb exposition. So I was really um, happy that our two books converged on a, a very similar set of empirical points. The second um, set of folks I want to thank, or the second person I want to thank, is Syra Wasim. Syra Wasim did the fabulous artwork, or actually, uh, she did this painting, of course, on her own, and then she let me use it for the publication. And by way of a data point about the compulsion to self-censor uh, self um, amongst print and other outlets in Pakistan, OUP is bringing a version of my book out, but they're not doing so with this cover. And what I received in the email was the, the direct um, explanation that the cover mocks and ridicules the Pakistan army. Therefore, this cover is not suitable for the Pakistan version. So this is just data point N of how uh, different agencies and organizations, even though they're private in Pakistan, have this implicit sense of, of self-censoring to avoid vexing or in any way, shape, or form discomforting the army. I thought it was interesting that it'd be uh, vexed by the cover and not by the contents. But anyways, I wanted to give a shout out. Content Sire. takes a longer time to read. That's right. The ISI will have to pull out their glossary because I, I, their, their dictionary. <coughs> I use some fun words in there. Um, but anyways, check out Syra Wasim's artwork. She does absolutely amazing work. So here was my question. Um, when I first came upon this project, actually going back to 2000, I was interested in how different militaries understand counterinsurgency operations. 
And so I went through Indian as well as Pakistani military journals, and it turns out the Indian journals were much more like our own in the sense that they actually talk about operations that they fought, and they actually had a process of thinking about the lessons that they learned from those conflicts and then disseminating them through their professional journals in a way that's not so dissimilar from American journals. I found that I couldn't use the Pakistani defense literature in the same way because they don't actually discuss any battles they actually conducted. So if there would be any reference to the 71 war or the 65 war in, say, the Pakistan Army Journal or the Pakistan Defense Review, it would be along the lines of a memoir. So back in Komilla, I had this beautiful Bakar Khani, for example, with this gorgeous paneer, and the Jawans I served with were brave and they were fantastic. So I had to put aside the Pakistan journals for the particular purpose that I was engaging in in 2000, but I said to myself, let's come back and revisit this, because the very fact that you have military journals that don't actually discuss military operations is in and of itself quite interesting. What purpose are they serving? So when I came to Georgetown, I was able to go back to this project that had really been rattling around my head for <coughs> quite some time. And um, as I began moving away from my traditional PhD, which was in the um, civilizations and languages of South Asia, thus the various proficiencies that the ambassador noted, and I began engaging political science questions, I realized that I was sitting on a treasure trove of data. Specifically, what political science scientists asks, what, what some political scientists would ask of a country like Pakistan, is why does it persist in its revisionism? And by which I mean to say revisionism, revisionism in the sense that it both wants to overturn this, the territorial status quo vis-a-vis -vis India and with respect to Kashmir in particular, but also from the 1970s onward, you see in Pakistan's defense literature that Pakistan sees itself as the only country that can resist India's rise. Interestingly enough, Pakistan is identifying India as a South Asian hegemon and a rising global power long before India's own defense publications <coughs> posit it as such. So you see Pakistan, um, during the period that I'm examining, not only digging in and, and adhering ever more ferociously to its territorial revisionism, but you also see Pakistan expanding its revisionism in terms of locating itself as the only source of resistance to India's rise. Now, it's useful to point out that Pakistan's revisionism, with, with, with very limited exceptions, largely has not worked. It started the 1947 war. Now, I would argue that that was, um, that was an example of a successful engagement in the sense that if it had not started that tribal incursion, it would have had none of Kashmir. But I make the argument in the book that from 47 onward, you begin to see diminishing margins of returns to this asymmetric policy that Pakistan develops in 1947. I want to point out, I think Ambassador Haqqani um, and Shujan Nawaz in a piece he did in India Review are the only ones that really say clearly that Pakistan began this strategy of asymmetric conflict not in 1980 or 1990, but in fact in 1947, and, and that's very much the case. So in addition to the 47 war, it also started the 1965 war. And while we can say whether or not Pakistan was decisively defeated, we do know now that India had, it, had better Paul Mill engagement and had uh, uh, better leadership actually could have decisively defeated Pakistan. We, we now know this from the historical record. But in any event, Pakistan launched that war and failed to win it. And as a result of that war, 
had its military aid cut off. And since it was overwhelmingly dependent upon the United States, even though India was also sanctioned, Pakistan really fared worse as an uh, outcome of, of that war than India did. And obviously, we know the Cargill War of 99 was started by the Pakistanis. And, and the sequelae of that are really too numerous to, to briefly um, identify here. But it started the rapprochement between the, uh, between the Americans and the Indians that provided the Americans with a hook to revert its policies towards these two countries in South Asia. It convinced the Indians that we would not always reflexively side with the Pakistanis, although if you read the work of Dennis Cox or Ambassador Haqqani, you would know that, that wasn't the case anyway. So the, the military approach that Pakistan has had has either failed or it, it, or it has not allowed Pakistan to win decisively. Even more importantly, this policy of using Islamist proxies, I think we can all agree today, has even come to imperil the very viability of the state itself. Why do I say this? There would be no Tariqe Taliban in Pakistan or the Pakistan Taliban had there been no Harkatul Jihad Islami, no Harkatul Ansar, no Harkatul Mujahideen, or Jaish al Muhammad. We often think of the TTP as a Pashtun phenomenon, but in fact, its backbone is very much based upon these Punjabi groups that Pakistan had raised and nurtured to conduct operations in India as well as also in Afghanistan. So we would expect that states would modify or even get rid of altogether those policies that fail to achieve a state's objectives, much less imperil the state. And of course, I'm going to argue, and I do argue in the book, that Pakistan doesn't do this. The conventional wisdom that Pakistan does this because it's a security-seeking state. Now, uh, as Ambassador Haqqani had mentioned, the argument I make in my book is that here in the, in the US policy-making circles, this tends to get reduced to a grand bargain. And for example, Ahmed Rashid and Barnett Rubin wrote this some years ago, that if we could bring peace between India and Pakistan, Pakistan will feel more secure. It can put down its jihadi assets. There'll be peace in Afghanistan. This gives rise to this notion of a grand bargain, that if we can resolve the Kashmir issue, then the Afghanistan issue will also be resolved. And this is clearly an argument that I argue against in my book. I do want to point out that it's not even clear that, at least from my point of view, from the point of, from the, uh, point of view of international law, that Pakistan even has any claims on Kashmir. There is an instrument of secession, of, of a session that was signed between the Maharaja of Kashmir and the Indian government. And there was nothing in the terms of partition that said Pakistan should get Kashmir. And as I argue in the book, Pakistan's sole claim to Kashmir derives in good measure because of the notion that it was built upon um, this, this idea of a two-nation theory, that Hindus and Muslims are not only separate nations, but they're also equal nations. And we can talk more about that if you're interested in the Q&A. Many Pakistanis believe that the two-nation theory meant that there was going to be a Pakistan. Uh, we know from scholars on, on Nehru, and excuse me, on Jinnah, that that wasn't the case. Jinnah was actually mobilizing the two-nation theory in an effort to get equal representation between Hindus and Muslims at the center of a unified India. And it was only after his failure to get those concessions from the Indian National Congress that, in fact, partition uh, became the way forward. So that's a, a whole other aside, the, the myths that Pakistanis themselves say about the two-nation theory. But that's where Pakistan's claim to Kashmir resides. So I, I'm going to argue in the book that it doesn't do the United States any good to even entertain that. And part of the reason is that Pakistan's demand for Kashmir, because it's rooted in the two-nation theory, is not a security-seeking demand. 
we assume that Pakistan is security seeking. But when you read Pakistan's defense literature, nowhere, with the exception of a very recent set of claims made by Kiani, is Pakistan's claim to Kashmir framed within the context of security. Its claims to Kashmir are ideological. Therefore, it makes no sense to treat Pakistan like a security-seeking state when its goals primarily, I'm not saying exclusively, but its goals primarily vis-a-vis -vis India are ideological. This also means that if there were to be a border ferry who could come down and resolve the dispute over Kashmir, I argue in the book that Pakistan's issues with India are ideological. They're, they're philosophical. They're basically, it's a civilizational conflict that Pakistan has set up. And therefore, how can you resolve a civilizational conflict by resolving a contentious border? Um, this also, I would argue, treating Pakistan as a security-seeking state means that the Americans <clears throat> want to engage Pakistan through appeasing. We will see arguments that if we can uh, somehow buttress Pakistan's conventional military capabilities, it will be less aggressive towards India. It will require um, a, a decreased reliance upon nuclear weapons. And so if you look at the policy that the Americans have basically pursued vis-a-vis -vis Pakistan for six decades, it's really been treating Pakistan like a security-seeking state. That if somehow we can address this fundamental security uh, and the issues that animate Pakistan's insecurity, that we can transform Pakistan, right? That's, um, that's the basic argument that, that I have for how we've engaged Pakistan albeit episodically over the past six decades. The reason why I argue that this has failed is that Pakistan is not a security-seeking state primarily. It's actually an ideological state. And I, I make this argument um, by looking at what I call Pakistan's strategic culture. And we can debate in the Q&A um, how contentious this literature is. I'm not interested in resolving the different theoretical debates within that scholarship. But um, I'm going to argue by looking at Pakistan's military publications as well as memoirs of, of different generals that we can infer how Pakistan constructs its strategic culture. That is to say, how does Pakistan construct its threats? And how does Pakistan understand the tools with which it can best contend with those threats? I draw upon the work of Charlie Glazer. He's now at George Washington. He was previously at Chicago. And he put forward this concept of a greedy state. And I think it's useful to look at what he says. He says uh, an ideological or a greedy state is one that's fundamentally dissatisfied with the status quo, desiring additional territory even when it's not required for security. And I feel fairly confident that this is a description <coughs> that pretty much to the T describes Pakistan's obsession uh, with Kashmir. And I would also, by extension, make similar claims about strategic depth in Afghanistan. Also, Ambassador Akhani is the only person who's written uh, very clearly that Pakistan's obsession with strategic depth began even before partition, right? It actually inherited this concept from the British. So the misconceptions that this began with, with Zia or perhaps Aslam Beg is, is, is simply not true. Pakistan inherited this. And so Glazer says that greedy states use competition as the only or primary means to achieve these non-security goals. And he'll further say that by treating ideological states as security-driven states, we actually incentivize ever more bad behavior. And in the final chapter of my book, I say that's exactly what we've done. We've treated it as a security-seeking state, when it's a greedy ideological state, and we've actually incentivized ever more bad behavior. And therefore, we need to think about how we engage Pakistan in a very fundamentally and different way. Ambassador Khani already talked a little bit about the data. My primary workhorse are basically those publications that were 
uh, issued either by ISPR or by GHQ itself. Since the 1990s, the Pakistan Army has been publishing what's called the Green Books. By the way, all of these are digitized. I have an enormous collection. So if any of you are interested in some of these publications, just holler at me. But there's literally thousands of pages that I've scanned over uh, really the last six years intensively, but going back to 2000 in particular. I'm also, at the end of my presentation, I'm going to um, bring different data sources that I've collected. I do a lot of quantitative work, as some of you may know. I'm going to bring together my survey data, as well as data that I have at district level officer recruitment to talk about what might be some of the potential changes that would suggest that the past is not necessarily the best predictor of the future. But here's my key findings, and I was warned by Ambassador Haqqani to um, not have any off-color humor. I, I think this is bordering. For those of you who know Monty Python and the Black Knight, any Monty Python fans? It's just a flesh wound. No, it's not. I cut your bleeding arm off. And he cuts the other. It's still just a flesh wound. And the Black Knight hobbles with just his head through the forest. Come back and take your ankle beating like a man. I see that and I think of Pakistan. <laughs> In the sense that Pakistan has tried, to, has tried to overturn the territorial status quo and has been pretty much defeated in one way or another. And we can debate whether or not 65 was that, but there is a no debating that in 1971, Pakistan lost half of its territory and half of its people. And we could also debate who started the 1971 war, but we can't debate how the war happened. That really came from Pakistan's own mis mismanagement of what was an insurgency that arose from Pakistan's complete refusal to incorporate as full citizens Pakistan's um, citizens in East Pakistan. But when you read Pakistan's defense literature, they don't view 1971 as a full defeat. They say what's actually amazing is that we persisted, we have survived against a much larger army, and that we are able to continue to challenge India, that we are able to continue to resist India's hegemonic impulses means that we have actually won in our own way. And when you read Pakistan's defense literature, what really hits you squarely is that the reason why I think many Americans view Pakistan's behavior as irrational is because they have a very different definition of success and failure than what the Pakistan army has. I see the Pakistan army more as international insurgents. The Pakistan army does not have to defeat India. It has to simply be able to dust itself off and in the future be able to conduct some sort of operation. For the Pakistan army, absolute acquiescence is real defeat. And this was actually pointed out to me by an army chief some years ago when we were talking about Cargill. And he said, for us to do nothing is to accept India's hegemony and is to be defeat. So you can always expect the Pakistan army to engage in calculated risks. In other words, even though we have very low uh, prospects for winning in any given engagement, the fact that we tried is what matters. And so I think of Pakistan in this way as really an international insurgent. When, when the Indians think about taking on Pakistan, they think about defeating Pakistan. What Pakistan's military needs to survive an engagement is just the ability to mount another confrontation in the future. And I think that's, that's a really important takeaway from this literature that I want you to think about. So in other words, Pakistan persists in this revisionism because it views fundamentally defeat and victory in terms very different than from what most you and I in this audience would, would understand. 
I don't think I need to, in, in this audience, belabor why I'm focusing on the Pakistan Army. Other studies of strategic culture will look at civilian institutions. There have been several studies of, of France, of Germany, of the United States, of the UK. Why am I looking at the army? Well, there's an old adage, right? Many countries have an army, but Pakistan is where the army actually has a country. Now, um, I know there are others, perhaps Anatolievan would disagree with this, but for all intents and purposes, the, the army has directly or indirectly controlled the levers of national security policy. And I would argue that that is still the case today. The army doesn't have to have a coup because the army is very capable of achieving its objectives without directly um, intervening in politics. And if you have any questions about that, look at the, 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 the way in which the army's been able to slow down economic liberalization between India and Pakistan. When there have been few examples of, of civilians that have dared resist the wills of the army, we also know what, what has happened to those governments. Those governments did not live long. <laughs> or those individuals. Or those individuals. I mean, this is another important point that I made in the book, is that the army is capable of political coercion, both through the threat of violence, but also because they will commit violence. Um, maybe not necessarily the army, but, but certainly the organizations to which it outsources through the ISI. Um, this is certainly true of diplomats, it's, it's true of journalists, it's true of just about anyone that they want to silence. They're, they're very effective at getting people to either self-censor or to pay the consequences. So some of the foundational beliefs, and this is sort of summarizing what I take away from the six decades of, of reading this stuff, is that partition really looms big in their literature. And, and this is actually something it's hard to disagree with. Um, now, some of the stories that they construct about, the, to get really in the weeds for a second, about the so-called Gurdaspur Award is absolutely fictitious. If you, if you look at the, that argument, there's no empirics that, that support that argument. But the big picture that what Pakistan got was a, was a, um, a very, well, not only was it moth-eaten geographically, but there was no single unit that was coherent because of the, two, the, uh, the martial race theory. Um, all of its ministries were understaffed. There had been no history of governing Pakistan from what became Karachi. It was not the equal inheritor of the bureaucratic apparatus of the Raj. India retained all of the infrastructure of the Raj. What became, what is now Pakistan, was actually at the frontier of the Raj. So parts of it was still under sort of a more military dispensation, whereas much of what became India had already been indigenized and had long-standing experience with parliamentary democracy. Now, of course, East Pakistan, that was the exception, right? That's where you actually had a lot of political development, but the, Pac the West Pakistani elites, rather than capitalizing upon the, uh, the human capital and the experience with democracy in the East, decided they were not equal citizens, and, and we know that history. So I'm not saying that uh, Pakistan made choices. I'm not giving Pakistan a free pass, but I think it is important to note that uh, their argument that 47 was an unfair process is something that we should reflect upon. And if you were in the Pakistan military and you see this in their writings and you still actually see this in their writings today, they will say that they inherited the most dangerous aspects of the threat frontier of the, of, of the, of the British Raj. And specifically, I'm talking about the, the threat frontier from Russia with a, a, a completely emaciated military. In other words, a fraction of the military resources to confront the most active threat frontier of, of the coherent um, Raj. And then what the Pakistanis would add on to this unfair process was that it was an unfinished process. And they'll talk about 
not getting Kashmir, of course, as being um, highly illustrative of that, but also how Hyderabad became a part of India as well as Junagar, which those three were the three disputed princely states. The other thing that comes across from day one, and I'm gonna argue part of it stems from the partition process, part of it comes from the fact that very quickly by the 50s, Pakistan and India become on opposite sides of the alliance divide, right? Pakistan becomes allied um, with the United States and Iran. India formally uh, maintains a non-alignment status but grows increasingly close to the Russians. So the, the two countries fall on the opposite sides of, of the alliance divide. And because of Afghanistan's closeness to the Russians, Afghanistan also falls into that relationship between the Indians and the Russians. So even Afghanistan gets sucked into Pakistan's perceptions of India. Now this is in addition to other sources of competition between Afghanistan and Pakistan that have to stem only from, from Afghanistan's own policies. For example, rejecting Pakistan's admission to the UN and constantly disputing um, the, the border or the, the boundary between the two countries. So this gives rise to, um, as a combination of its fears about India, the inherited perceptions about the Russians, and then all of these things sort of wrapping up together in Afghanistan to an absolute dogged pursuit of strategic depth. Now I know there have been some writers around town who say that Pakistan has given up strategic depth. I'm gonna argue in my book that's nonsense. What they're not familiarizing themselves with are the different forms in which strategic depth was pursued by the, by the British. And in fact, I map out in the book you can see a very similar sort of moving back and forth between being much more aggressive in Afghanistan and moving more closely and trying to manipulate events from the Fatah. <laughs> this, this looks much more similar to the practice of strategic depth than not. And so I argue in the book that as a consequence of what's happening in Afghanistan and India's rise, the strategic depth in its various guise is not going anywhere. But it, it might change forms given Pakistan's uh, domestic and other resources. So let me, let me just what, cut to a couple things I think are kind of interesting. Um, all right, so the, is the past prologue. Should we just necessarily expect that Pakistan is going to continue to engage in this really dangerous and reckless revisionism, its primary tool that I talk about in the book, is jihad under the nuclear umbrella. By the way, I want to point out a couple of interesting things about jihad under the nuclear umbrella. Many folks, again, think that Pakistan began this policy of jihad outside of of Afghanistan circa 1990. As already said, Ambassador Haqqani, Shuja Nawaz sort of decimate that point and locate that clearly in 1947. It turns out that the evolution of this doctrine is very evident in Pakistan's military writings. And I have to say Steve Cohen is I think the only other person with the exception I think, I haven't gotten through all of Akhil Shah's new book, but I think we're the only three that's really engaged this set of literatures in any, in any way, shape or form. By the time you get to the 1950s, the Americans are training the Pakistanis to be partners in counterinsurgency. But when you read their literature, they're actually formulating, oh boy, we can actually foment an insurgency. And you'll actually see articles that sort of tick off, this is what we need to do to wage an insurgency. We have all of these things. And you'd have to be pretty much a clueless moron to not figure out where they're planning on waging that insurgency because the environments look exactly like Kashmir. They talk about people's war, they talk about guerrilla's warfare. By the time you get to the 1970s, this sort of leftist, uh, this sort of leftist lingo of, of a people's war, guerrilla war, begins transforming more consistently into jihad. 
by the time you get to the 70s, Pakistani writers are already talking about what happens when we, not if, when we get a nuclear weapon. And the, the sidebar that's really important to understand that timeline is that many people think of, the, of Pakistan's <coughs> nuclear program as sort of the gem of the army. Well, it is now, but it wasn't always necessarily so, right? So Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, um, as early as 1964, understood that Pakistan needed to have a nuclear weapon. And his logic went like this. After the 62 defeat of the, of the Indians by the Chinese and the Indian test at Lopnor, he had already decided that India was going to have to pursue a nuclear weapons capability. And in fact, India's civilian nuclear program is much older. They had a huge head start on the Pakistanis. And in fact, he had been going to his military leadership for quite some time saying, we need a nuclear weapon. Ayub Khan, for example, thought this was just silly. It would alienate the Americans and all of the Western donors. And he actually said, if we need a nuclear weapon, we'll just buy one off the shelf. So it wasn't until the 71 war and the, the, you know, the complete, what's what I'm looking for, humiliation of the army and Zulfarli Bhutto coming to power that he could execute his vision of a nuclear Pakistan. So as early as the early 70s, people were, in, were saying things like, once we get nuclear weapons, we can reopen this Kashmir dispute. So it's really important that I note in the book that Pakistan begins bringing together these forms of asymmetric conflict and nuclear weapons much earlier than 1990. And I have a whole chapter where I sort of lay out evidence uh, for this argument. And I think that's a, an important insight. We often think that they did this circa 90. No. Or some people even say they did it in 98 after the nuclear test. They begin thinking about this um, as early as 1974. And obviously, India's test at Pokhran galvanizes and, and gives considerable um, legitimization to what Zulfikar Ali Bhutto was saying all along. So what are some of the potential game changers? So I talk about, well, what are, what are endogenous game changers? And I'm sorry, that's, that's nerd speak. <laughs> so what I mean by endogenous game changers are things that can happen within Pakistan that could change the way in which the Pakistan army does business uh, for the foreseeable future. And you know, I'm, no, I'm not the most creative person, except apparently when I'm swearing in Punjabi, which I'm not doing right now. So one obvious uh, game changer would be this democratic transition. Now we can debate uh, whether or not Pakistan is generally experiencing a democratic moment or not. And I think people, will, some, will, some of you will be more optimist. I'm probably more on the pessimist side. Um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna stake the claim that the army knows how to get its, its bidding done without directly intervening. And as long as it has control over the portfolios that it wants, it doesn't need to have a coup. So, uh, you know, when we think about a democratic transition, for this to really happen, two things have to happen. There has to be genuine civilian control of the military, and the civilians have to genuinely have a strategic culture and a way of viewing its threat perceptions and the ways of managing that threat that differ significantly from the army. And the points that I make in the book, and this, and this has to do with Ayub Khan's very early decision to align Pakistan's curriculum with what he called the ideology of Pakistan. By the way, this, again, didn't start with Zia. This began with Ayub. In his book, Friends Not Masters, he has an entire chapter called The Ideology of Pakistan. One of the first pieces he wrote in Foreign Affairs was on the ideology of Pakistan. So this begins very, very early. And I argue that the army has been very effective both through its direct control. And by the way, you saw this uh, during Musharraf's rule. Who did he put in charge of the head of uh, education? 
a former ISI guy. So they've been very good at diffusing its own strategic culture to ensure that civilians largely share it. So democratic transition without a fundamentally different ideology that's acceptable in Pakistan, I don't think you're going to see a different set of behaviors coming from the state. We, there's a, a lot of talk about Pakistani civil society. I kind of laugh at that because actually Pakistan civil society has a lot of uncivil elements. So if you're looking at Twitter, I follow all of the militant groups. They are, you show me a comparable um, civil liberties-based Twitter feed that has as many followers, that is as effective and has such a reach as Jamatul Dufus. I mean Jamatul Dawa. I challenge you. You're not going to find one. Many of Pakistan's uncivil society actors are much more effective than Pakistan's civil society actors. Madrasas, right? They're civil society. Jamaat Islami, civil society. Mosques, they're civil society. And what those groups want are, are not necessarily things that, that folks that are committed to civil liberties would want. Um, people talk about the new youth bulge as a potential transformation. I do a lot of survey work. So this set of, of folks that, that uh, call themselves burgers, these aren't liberal folks, folks. They're more conservative than their parents. Economic shocks, we can talk about that. The IMF is always going to pay Pakistan off. So let me talk about something that I think is interesting and is exciting. What you see here, and I don't, you don't have to see the years, just trust me. Up in the upper left is 1972. Lower left is 2005, the last year of data. What those little colored splotches are, are districts. These are district-level heat maps of, of officer recruitment. And what you see between 72 and 2005, whereas in 72 most districts didn't produce officers, in 2005 most did. And this isn't an accident. This is actually one of the few things that the Pakistan Army has done that actually makes sense. Right? They want to bring Baloch and, and Sindhis in so that they become part of the nation-building process. But you know what? There's a free rider problem here because the folks that they're recruiting from these districts don't share the views of the people of the Punjab. And what evidence do I have to suggest that this is the case? I'm only going to show you one slide, well, actually two. Um, I have a whole bunch of questions um, drawing from a very large survey of 16,000 people about views of jihad, civil military relations, what Kashmiris think. What, just trust my word. Take my word for it. It's on my website, christinefair.net, by the way. Okay. So let's look at Punjabis in the Punjab versus Punjabis elsewhere. You, again, you don't necessarily need to see these numbers, but take a look at these stars. What is very interesting is that Punjabis in the Punjab are much more supportive of militarized jihad than Punjabis outside of the Punjab. Okay? So just by even if they're recruiting Punjabis in Balochistan, there is no reason to think that those Punjabis think like the Punjabis in the Punjab. And why the Punjabis think certain ways, that's, that's a whole other discussion that we can take on the Q&A. There's lots of reasons for it. The next thing I looked at is Punjabis versus non-Punjabis in the Punjab. It turns out that for the most part, being born, being in the Punjab, overdetermines your views on these issues. So in other words, it doesn't matter, ethnicity matters less than actually where you're born. Does everyone sort of understand that? This means that if Pakistan continues to recruit from these areas, it's going to have a really interesting challenge. In other words, there's no such thing as a free lunch. If it wants to expand the ethnic recruiting base for national goals, it's going to have to contend with the fact that over time, it's recruiting people who don't share the core values of the Pakistan army as espoused by the original core there in the Punjab. And I will, before he strangles me, I'm going to shut up. 
Thank you very much. I think that was a great presentation and uh, it has given us a lot of food for thought. There will be many, many questions. I will start off with one question myself. So while going through all of this, <coughs> did the question occur to you as to why when all of this material was out there, I mean Ayub Khan was talking about ideology and this and that, why was it that the Americans interacting with the Pakistani officials could not understand this at that time? Was it willful blindness or does it have to do with the fact that there was, say, for example, especially after moving to Islamabad, you and I have talked about it, how Islamabad has what I call a sort of, you know, a, a, a fake civil society and a fake discourse. And so you, there's my famous list of 36 people, every American diplomat and every American visiting journalist ends up meeting. And so therefore, it was actually very filtered information uh, that did not enable American scholars, journalists, uh, and definitely government officials see through this uh, sort of, you know, um, an ideal, a gradual buildup of the ideology. Of course, when it hit, then everybody started saying, oh gosh, what about the madrasas? How can we actually invest in madrasas to make them less extremist? But when it was happening, nobody noticed it. What happened? Well, actually, I think we did notice it, but we liked it. So um, you would actually, um, when I went back and I was looking at journal articles about what Americans said about the Pakistanis, they said, these Muslims are just like Christians. Um, and of course, the Muslims were being perceived as hardy fighters. They were much preferable to the atheist communists. And so in the early years, Americans, I think, understood it, that they had no objection to it. And then, of course, by the time you get to the 70s, you run into the whole Shia-Sunni thing, right, after the Iranian Revolution in 79. The Americans, it's not until 9-11 that the Americans really run shrieking from, from Islam, right? But even throughout the 1980s, the Americans with the Saudis, we're funding um, madrasas, we're funding the Mujahideen machine. And now, this doesn't, by the way, many Pakistanis will, will distort that. It's important to know that Pakistan, and you note this in your book, you're, I think you're the first person that noted this. Another person that notes it is Rizvan Hussein. Pakistan began the, the Soviet, the, the anti-Soviet jihad in Afghanistan in 74. And the first overt US dollar doesn't show up until 1982, right? So this whole notion that we sucked Pakistan into our jihad is, is complete and utter nonsense. They really sucked us into their jihad. But um, what you really see is that for out, throughout much of Pakistan's history and engagement with the United States, we have no problem with Islam. We have no problem, we view them as warriors, they're, they're believing warriors. It's not until 9-11, we're like, holy crap, excuse me, sorry. I was, I, that's the first colorful, inappropriate word I, I used all day. And that too, <laughs> not in Punjabi, thank you. Yes. Uh, okay, yeah, great. So, that, so that's it, 9-11 okay. changes it for Ladies us. Ladies and gentlemen, questions? Yes, sir, in the middle, Mr. Sachs. Congratulations on your book. Thank you. Um, I have a short question. So Nawaz Sharif, you know, recently went to India, met Narendra Modi, who was the head of the uh, Hindu Nationalist Party, not exactly pro-Muslim. Uh, how, how would you interpret uh, that trip and Nawaz Sharif's thinking in terms of uh, an adherent of the Pakistan ideology? Is he working against Pakistan ideology? Is, is he, uh, what, is, what is exactly his role here? And, and what is he trying to accomplish? All right, so I mean, we, there's probably as many answers in, as there are people you know, in, in this room to that question. Here's my take. So first of all, it was under the, so 
Modi, in some, in some ways, is better placed than when Mohan Singh to be more forthcoming in engaging with Pakistan. Remember, it was the BJP in 1999, uh, excuse me, 1998, with Nawaz Sharif that undertook the Lahore process. We know exactly what the army did. That was called Cargill. So just because Modi has a, has a, a certain reputation association with Hinduism politics doesn't mean that he's necessarily going to be out there hammering the Pakistanis. So I would, in fact, I would argue that there's probably better hope with Modi than Mun Mohan Singh because Mun Mohan Singh was, was viewed as such a, um, as a pusillanimous individual with respect to Pakistan. Modi's not going to have that problem. But, but Nawaz Sharif, just because he wants to have some kind of economic normalization with India, doesn't necessarily mean that, that he's looking forward to some sort of complete normalization. And let's just pretend for a femtosecond that he did. The army will undercut him. The army knows that, that particularly under Modi, all they have to do is have a Lashkar-e-Taib attack or a some sort of resuscitated Jaish al-Muhammad activity in India that would completely undermine any of that. So the opportunities for spoilers. And by the way, the jihadi organizations themselves are increasingly capable of being an, a spoiler independent of the ISI. So I don't, I don't really expect much to come out of this. And I think the attack in Herat that was very likely done by Lushkar Taiba or the Haqqani Network, we'll, we'll probably know more in a few days, is a, is, a, is a really good testing of those waters. So I'm a pessimist. And, and, and I, if I may add something, I mean, there's a long history since 1951 when Prime Minister Liaquat Ali Khan went. Uh, a lot of Pakistani civilian leaders have actually wanted some kind of a modus vivendi with India. The problem is, can you have a modus vivendi with India when you are teaching your five-year-olds that India is a permanent enemy? So my point is that those are two contradictory objectives. I mean, Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif uh, did a good job. He didn't talk about Kashmir in India, which he's being criticized for in Pakistan. And they, that, make, that criticism may become stronger as, as, as time goes by. And that will be the way. But the fact remains that usually you move in tandem. So for example, when Nixon went to China, Mao Zedong made the decision that, OK, we are going to open up to America the anti-American rhetoric in China started to decline. I covered that as a journalist, uh, sort of, you know, late 70s, early 80s. I was in Hong Kong. China started reducing that to be able to open itself to America. If we see that happening in Pakistan, uh, then, they, then, then this will come to something more. But other than that, in the India-Pakistan process, there are often a lot of events that, un, that, that grip the American media and American diplomats is attention a little too much. I mean, the Vajpayee process made American diplomats go wow, and nobody noticed Cargill was happening. Whereas, uh, I mean, I was in prison during those days, but in prison I had already heard that there were boys who were going all over uh, onto the Indian sides and were going to take over Srinagar in a few days. So I don't understand why the huge uh, security apparatus of the United States was unable to pick that up. So, so, so that can only be because there's a presumption that everything is exactly as it's stated to be, whereas there is a stated thing and there's a behind-the-scenes thing. Nawaz Sharif genuinely wants an opening up of economic relations with India, but does he really want to take on the business of shutting down the jihadi groups, etc.? There is no sign thereof so far. Um, Yes. Has, has it been, oh, Surjit Man Singh, American University. Has it been published in India? 
And what is the reaction there? Because some of the points that you have made in the first part of your lecture are points that are fairly current. Oh, can you speak? I, I'm so, I have such a bad hearing problem. The has the book I been published in India? What, what has, has been, the, been the Indian reaction to your book? Because some of the points you make right in the beginning are points that many of us have made in India and are fairly current. So I'd li like to know the reaction. So the book is, is very recently available, right, here in the States. Um, OUP India is not bringing out an India version, but they're bringing the, the British version at a, at a renegotiated price point. And I'm not sure when it's going to be available in India. And it's being translated in Hindi as well. So I don't know what the response will be because <laughs> I don't think there's been one yet. And there hasn't really, this is the first discussion I've had publicly here. I've had two military environment discussions of the book. So this is the first public discussion of it. Uh, Mrs. Zeitlin here, then right at the back, and then. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, <clears throat> my name is Arnold Zeitlin, and <clears throat> I opened up the first Associated Press Bureau in Pakistan <clears throat> in 1969. Uh, my son was in Dubai recently and had dinner with a Pakistani magnate who told him that the solution to Pakistan's problems was for the army to step in for about six months and set things right. So my son is hearing what I've been hearing since 1969 from people of that stature. Uh, I'd like to know if you discuss in the book those segments of Pakistan uh, uh, society that benefit from the army's position in that state maybe not even benefit from it, but actually support it? I mean, look, so this is, based upon the survey work that I've done, which are very large end surveys, Pakistanis themselves are very divided about civil-military relations, when and under what circumstances the army should be able to intervene. Um, a very small number actually say never. Pakistanis are, debate, are divided about whether they want a parliamentary form of democracy or a presidential form of democracy. So these very fundamental questions are continually um, unresolved. And the problem with Pakistan's political parties is that there's always political interruptus because of the military. And so the ability of these political parties to fashion manifestos and party platforms and actually conduct the business of a party in addition other as a as a primary activity rather than patronage has been very limited so unless you have political parties that can actually aggregate interest and, and put forward change resolving these really foundational questions about what pakistan is what kind of state it's going to be and for whom the state will be is going to continue to linger variations of the theme exist for example who's a muslim right we know the constitu the constitution is an apartheid in the sense that non-Muslims do not have the same rights as Muslims and non-Muslims simply put don't have the same rights. And one of the things that you see with these creeping Deobundi organizations is that they are increasingly getting to say who is or is not a proper Muslim. Right? We, they obviously take aside the Hindus and the Sikhs and, and the, the Christians at the time of partition. Obviously they first took on the Ahmadiyyas and they took on the Shias and now increasingly they're taking on the Braille V. So I would argue that leaving aside your, this unusual, diasporas are always non-representative data points. I did my dissertation on the Sikh diaspora. One, 
will always be led astray by diasporas. But I think the more general point is that there's this incredible set of diverse opinions about what Pakistan should be and for whom, and there is no clear mechanism of resolving this. I, I, you know, I think Pakistanis are a lot like Americans in the sense that um, we are a generally divided country, and, and our politics can't really resolve these genuine divides because the political parties that we represent also share those very deep divisions. So, that's a longer yeah, over Scott discussion. Although I think Chris uh, Arnold's question was a little more specific because he mentioned the magnet, and I think we know the magnet. So uh, th th there are there are <laughs> business magnets in Pakistan who do benefit. Uh, each military rule makes them richer. Uh, they are in the business of indenting for military equipment. They do the supplies for the armed forces, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When the budget enlarges, their share of it enlarges. And so probably the same gentleman told you in 1969 that the military should come and clean up things in six months. And this time he's telling your son, and his son will be telling your grandson the same thing uh, in, in 20 years, 30 years from now. So, so, so there, that does exist. But there are also comparable magnets that benefit from political parties. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. it's m dueling magnets in their interests. Sure, fair enough. Right at the back, and then we move forward from the back. There's another question at the back there. Thanks, Ambassador Haqqani. Um, Dr. Fair, wonder if you could just sort of take a stab at uh, a number of these questions. I, I need to. Real, I have a what, really bad ear. That, that's that's fine. I'll speak. Okay. Um, could you define mill-to-mill -mill relations between the United States and Pakistan, and not necessarily uh, regarding our role in mediating the conflict in late 2001 or, or 2009, or even the Raymond Davis affair, but but more the consequence of Abbottabad and so, you know the issue of sovereignty and sort of unilateral move. I don't know if you caught his remarks earlier. But the president sort of doubled down on uh, U.S. Uh, prerogative to act unilaterally when our interests, however uh, defined, um, are at stake. So that's one question. Another, could you also look at the relationship between the ISI uh, and their counterpart in, uh, in India? And, uh, and the last is, could you and maybe you also, Ambassador Khani, look at the transformative effect and, and the real sort of global footprint if the indications in North Korea are to be believed? of uh, the work of A.Q. Khan, not just as a, as a national figure, but as sort of an, an international symbol. Thanks. Okay, so your first, look, that's, that's a huge list, and I'm, I'm gonna take the first one, because the, the other two, they kind of fold under. I'm not gonna comment about raw here, because um, I haven't done extensive research on raw. But look, there's both, in my view, the Bush administration and the Obama administration have completely rendered this, this theater foobar, right? That's not the, my preferred vernacular, but that's the vernacular I will use here. Please translate that into standard English. You told me I couldn't use that, ver I can't. Okay. Okay. Ducked up with a D beyond all recognition. Okay. I, right, I, I used a okay. bird and avian okay. reference. Okay. So look, he, he, we went into this, let, let's do a counterfactual, just to give you an idea of how insane I am. But let's do a counterfactual. Remember that Iran, in, as of December 2001, was completely with us on this invasion. Let's remember this. If, if for those of you who don't remember it, go back and look. Iran, at the bond process, I know Marvin Weinbaum can attest to this, was incredibly helpful in the bond process. It was the Iranians that mentioned putting a reference to democracy in the Afghan constitution. It was the Iranians that said that the Afghan constitution should legitimize counter-narcotics and the war on terror. This was Iran. 
And what did George Bush do to, Iran, to reward Iran's cooperation? Put it in the axis of evil. By the way, I understand my cookbook, Cuisines of the Axis of Evil, is for sale in the back of the room. So, um, no, I'm, I'm not kidding. I, I think it is, actually, um, in which I criticize this Iran policy. Imagine if we put all of our lines, all of our logistical supply through Chabahar, which had been developed with the Indians along with the road and rail link into Afghanistan. Imagine if we could have fought the war in Afghanistan without relying upon Pakistan through Karachi. Right? We, so basically, to use a colorful aphorism, we built a daycare and we put a priest in charge. Right? We were utterly reliant upon Pakistan to help us in this war in Afghanistan because people believed General Musharraf's U-turn on the Taliban. But in point of fact, from the various earliest points in that conflict onward, Pakistan became ever more resolved to exactly the opposite outcome that we wanted in Afghanistan. And moreover, I was a huge opponent of the surge. I testified against it in congressional testimony, so I stand on record having said this. By putting 40,000 more people in Afghanistan, ostensibly to win this war in Afghanistan, whatever in the world you might metricize to use a DOD expression as win, <clears throat> we made ourselves ever more dependent upon Pakistan for the, for the logistical resupply when Pakistan was ever more clearly the problem. Right? And I'm going to say the same thing about this announcement yesterday of the nearly, nearly 10,000 troops are going to stay. You, I don't care if you have 100,000 or 10,000. As long as Pakistan is continuing to take our $30 billion and support the Taliban who kill our troops, as long as Pakistan's SSG, which is their commandos, are training the Taliban and fighting with the Taliban, killing our troops in Afghanistan, we are wasting our lives and we are wasting our money. It, to to summarize, Carlotta Gall, the we, wrong enemy. We, 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 we get the point. <laughs> uh, okay, somebody at the back had their hand up, uh, a lady there, right. Hello, Chris. I'm Hina Baloch, and I'm a former Hubert H. Humphrey Fellow and a current UNESCO Fellow at UPenn. I have a question about self-censorship that you talked about in the beginning of your presentation. I've been in D.C. for about two years now, and I noticed that there is this same self-censorship pattern within the think tanks and within the scholars at, in D.C. as well. I was speaking to some scholar a few days back, and they said that, you know, there's, it is a very dog-eat-dog -dog competitive kind of a think tank world in D.C. And if we talk too much about Pakistani ISI or Pakistani military, Pakistan becomes inaccessible to us, and which is, which is very damaging to our careers. So there's only so much we can say or so much we can do. For example, a lot of scholars do not want to talk about Balochistan uh, because it closes doors to Pakistan to them. So what do you have to say about that? I'm PNG'd. That's what I'll say about that. And you know what? I don't care if I ever go back to Pakistan. Because you don't actually need to go to Pakistan to get, pa I think this is something, so this is a lesson I had to learn the hard way, right? Everyone thinks that your currency is access. But actually, at some point, maybe four or five years ago, I realized, no, this access is actually, it's a distorting lens. It seemed very, the access you get is a lot like going in one of those NATO embeds of the war in Afghanistan. You never meet real people. You, you, it's like a diorama. You, you know, for example, they would always give me the handsome ISI protocol officer because they know my weaknesses for the Punjabis. But they would never let me meet a major. Chris, be who, careful. Your husband is watching. My husband knows all of my Punjabi exes. That's why we have such a good marriage. We have no secrets. So you never, you never meet the real people, right? So um, I would argue that, and we know who these names are. We know who they are. We know their initials. We know that the books that they write. 
And I think at some point I just decided I'm not going to keep holding my tongue when they're taking our money and are killing our troops so I can get a darned visa. So I take your point, but I'm, I'm not playing that game anymore. And you know something? It's being PNG'd is like being pregnant. You can't get more pregnant. And, and I think in Abeluj that there are also, you would acknowledge that there are many, many people who are actually writing quite forthrightly and speaking out and taking the risk because very frankly, I mean, I am a Pakistani and I'm concerned about Pakistan, just as you probably are as a Baluch from Pakistan, uh, worried about y your homeland. So uh, at some point, you just have to make the decision what is more convenient, facing some difficult truths, facing which might actually be better uh, and in, in academia, I would say that uh, people have to be absolutely sort of, you know, faithful to their primary job. How can they just fudge things all the time? I mean, like, for example, uh, uh, how can you just keep forgetting the historic timeline? I mean, I'm absolutely amazed that, you know, with this Modi Nawaz Sharif meeting, um, I wrote an op-ed in the Indian Express the other day in which I actually listed every meeting between Pakistani prime ministers and India, Indian prime ministers and what was said at the time. But I'm amazed how even the newspaper of record of this country doesn't even mention the past and say, hey, you know, this is not, we've had this first new beginning business going on since 1951. And so every few years, because people have short memories, we just say that. I mean, I can reproduce the statements of uh, the State Department spokesman over when Mr. Musharraf was invited by Vajpayee to go to Agra, uh, you know, which said, ah, great opportunity, this, that, you know, breaking through, breakthrough, da, 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 da. Uh, but that's not what's happening. So people have to start examining difficulties. Now, people can also write books and say, hey, it's a hard country, so because it's a hard country, therefore we have to deal it this way and that way, etc., and fudge the facts. Uh, but in the end, I think the, fudge, the facts will manifest themselves. 1971 was one such occasion. On the 16th of December, 1971, the headline of dawn in Pakistan was victory on all fronts. <laughs> that was the day that uh, the Pakistan army was surrendering uh, to the Indian army in Paltan Maidan in Dhaka. So fudging facts and you know, glossing over them whether it's in the think tank world or Washington DC or in the headlines of dawn in, his, in, in Pakistan, it's not going to change the on-ground realities. The fact still remains, as I keep reminding everyone, Pakistan has one of the largest numbers of out-of-school uh, out children of school-going age anywhere in the world. 42% Pakistani children uh, of school-going age do not go to any school of any sort. Uh, that is definitely something people need to think about. What's happening in Baluchistan is definitely shameful, although you know that anybody who mentions Baluchistan uh, is definitely immediately put on a blacklist and cannot get a visa for Pakistan. I don't need a visa for Pakistan, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and uh, I will talk about Baluchistan openly, and I hope Chris at some point will also work on this subject. So whether it's Baluchistan, whether it's the Shia, uh, killings, which some people describe as sectarian killings, they're not sectarian okay. killings because sectarian killings is when two sects are fighting each other. Two sects are not fighting each other. One sect is being massacred by terrorists belonging to another, and so those are the things that really need to be debated in the city. And you know, people can care about visas, but then North Korea doesn't give visas. Does that mean people should stop doing analytical exercises in North Korea and be dishonest about it? 
Um, okay, uh, yep, right here. Hello, uh, David Couch in the State Department. Uh, Chris, I was intrigued by your comment about how the strategic depth concept goes back to the British time. I was just wondering, uh, maybe the term has continued through that, but how has the substance of that term changed over time? And now, what do you see the Pakistanis, how do they envision strategic depth post-US uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan? Yeah, so, so the word has stayed the same, and I would argue that the, that the concept itself is not terribly dissimilar. So during the, the, the British period, there were two extreme policies, right? So one was what they called the forward policy. And the forward policy, which was very aggressive, it was a, um, a British footprint in Afghanistan. And the idea, of course, was that Afghanistan was going to be a buffer. And for those of you that don't know this, the little thumb in Afghanistan, the Wakhan Corridor, uh, poor Abdur Rahman in the 19th century was forced to take that territory. Um, it was forced upon him, at the, of course, with the inducement of a big uh, chunk of cash between the, the Russian empires and the British empire. And the logic being that if they shared no border, and if you look at a map at the time, that would have been the only place where they shared a border. So Afghanistan was a space that was supposed to be a buffer between the competition of these two rival empires. But so in the forward policy, the, the Brits would be much more active and aggressive. During what they called the close border policy, they would actually pull their resources. It was a much more defensive policy. And the, the Indus, which interestingly enough is still, I would argue, in contemporary Pakistan viewed as a line between civilized and uncivilized. You know, everything uncivilized lies to the west of the Indus and in Junglestan, which is uh, KPK in, in Balochistan. And then, of course, under the British Raj, as they, as they continue to consolidate, and as, the, the, as their westward frontier became more and more integrated to the apparatus of the Raj, it moved west from the Indus. So they would go back and forth, and, and there would be, you know, an alt, there'd be a revised close, a revised forward policy. But basically, the concept was, we're going to be much more aggressive with a footprint in Afghanistan protecting our interests versus we're going to pull back to what we think is our hard border, and we're going to use proxies. And so that's how you had this multiple tier. So Afghanistan was the outer buffer. The Amudarya was basically the beginning of the Russian sphere of influence. Fatah was the next buffer. And then you would have the settled Pashtun areas, which was yet another buffer, all going against the hard border, which was considered to be the core Raj interest. Now, I would argue, and um, you have argued, I think, more or less the same, Ambassador Akani, in your book, that uh, maybe it was you mentioned this in a, in a conference. I mean, that's, or, that's why they called it the Northwest Frontier Province, right? It was the Northwest Frontier Province of the Raj. So Pakistan kept all of that architecture, right? It only recently changed the name to Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, the Frontier Crimes Regulation, which is the, the apparatus to govern FATA to sort of maintain that status as a buffer between buffers or a buffer within buffers has been kept intact. And this idea that as long as the craziness happens to the west of the Indus, like we can toss those crazy Islamist Asharia bone as long as the west of the Indus, that's also remained intact. So I would argue that the, the strategic elites in, in the army, their view of their own citizenry, by the way, that also ties to their own, uh, I don't know what else to call it, racism, the way in which they view Pashtuns and the different second class citizenship that exists between Pashtuns Fata in the settled areas are all derivatives 
of this inherited notion of strategic depth? Um, yeah, and uh, okay, uh, yep, right here. No, no, no. Okay. I'll just let you have the say. Dave, that, 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 does that answer your questions to some extent? <clears throat> uh, Steve Winters, local researcher. Uh, I just want to throw this out, having gone to some other presentations where Pakistanis have sort of defended uh, their contributions to counterinsurgency efforts and counterterrorism, and the points that they, probably speaking for the government or whatever, uh, tend to make is, well, look at how many uh, you know people have actually died fighting the counterinsurgency uh, with among the, uh, the the Pakistani forces. And um, you know, look at how we went up into the Swat Valley when we were sort of pressed to do by the Americans, and you know, clear, you know, probably moved a couple of million people, uh, and so forth and so on. So uh, that doesn't hasn't that perspective hasn't come out in, in your presentation today. I'm just wondering how do how do you view those efforts uh, alongside uh, agreed the use of proxies and X, Y, and Z? So what what, what do you make of uh, how do you respond to, to that argument from the Pakistanis? All right, so Pakistan is both the biggest source of terrorism, but it is itself the biggest victim of terrorism. Now, we can debate those numbers. One of the things that I find very, very vexing, all of the reported security forces deaths, <coughs> they're never independently confirmed. I, I challenge um, the defense attache's office in Islamabad to actually track down funeral notices to actually see, what I'm thinking, I'm, the numbers are just, it's, it's like the Uzbeks. I mean, there's, it's like a chia pet. Just water it and there's like new numbers every single day. So I, I would like to see a little bit, in the same way I'm very critical of the figures on drone casualties, I think there needs to be some, some more rigor given to those numbers. They come here to the NDU, they put these on the PowerPoint slides with dancing monkeys and we take the numbers as, as given. Having said that, after 2001, and I'm going to use Ambassador Akani's words from a presentation he gave years ago because I think he just nailed it. Prior to 2001, the mullahs, the military, and the militants were more or less in alignment. After 2001, when Musharraf, perforce, and we can debate the extent of his U-turn, was uh, in a position of facilitating the war in Afghanistan, one sect of those militant groups really began to reorient. And let's be very clear. Let's call it a name. The people killing Shia are Deobundis. Let's not shy from calling the killers what they are. They tend to be Deobundis. So extremist Deobundis. Extremist Deobundis. Not all, yes, I mean, let's be very clear about this. So one of the first realignments that happened in December of 2001 was Jaish al-Muhammad split. Um, and the, the, the majority of the organization became Jamaat al-Furqan. Jaish al-Muhammad's Masood Azhar stayed loyal to the ISI, even told the ISI that the split was happening, that they had split over the disagreement with Musharraf aligning with the Americans to oust the Taliban. That, I would argue, was the beginning of what became the Pakistan Taliban. From that point onward, you had a cluster of Deobundi organizations all across the country beginning to target the Pakistani state. Remember, they were the ones that shared the closest ideology to the Afghan Taliban. They shared an archipelago of madrasas and mosques. And through their co-location with the Afghan Taliban, they were the closest to Al-Qaeda. Interestingly enough, Al-Qaeda is closest to ideology to Lashkar Taiba, but Lashkar Taiba was never co-located with the Taliban and never had that proximity. So what we, what we saw beginning with late 2001-2002 were these elements of these Deobundi militant groups reorganizing. Now this comes to Pakistan's biggest problem. Until it decides that it is going to stop using jihad under a nuclear umbrella, it cannot extirpate all of these groups. 
because essentially if they were to if they were to go through and nail all of these groups they'd also be getting rid of assets that will one day be again available to them in Afghanistan or or, or India so what you have the Pakistan army's negotiation with the TTP is this outcome please go kill Americans and their allies in Afghanistan otherwise we're going to give your drone coordinates to the Americans or we're going to kill you in aerial operations it's going to you know kill a lot of civilians and displace people I mean that's the reality of it so uh, it's very unfortunate that so many Pakistanis have died, but it's also, I think, a fact that had there been no Huji, Hua, Ham, Jaisha Muhammad, there would probably not be a TTP, and if it did come together, it wouldn't be as vicious and effective as it is today. Chris, we do want to give you and the audience some time for you to be able, uh, for the audience to be able to buy the book, oh, and for okay. you to be able to sign them. Now, okay. if you knew what's good for you, you would, oh, okay. you would save some time for that too. <laughs> My shorter answer to your question, sir, is very simple. The jihadists were not meant to fight inside Pakistan. They were meant to fight outside Pakistan for Pakistan's strategic interests. So those of the jihadis who have turned inward and turned onto the Pakistani state, of course, the Pakistani state is making a tremendous effort to fight them. Chris and I would argue, and many others would argue, that these people are essentially just offshoots of the jihadis that have been trained for outside and therefore a full battle with them would require taking on all of them rather than making this distinction because they don't make that distinction among themselves. Seema had a question right here, Seema Sarohi. Hi, um, Chris, uh, thanks for a great presentation. Um, now, if India is the permanent enemy, um, as the Pakistani army believes, then what is the nature of peace we can hope to have with Pakistan? Is it always, uh, I mean, Nawaz Sharif went to India and um, you know, there was a bit of hope that we'll engage again. But if this ideology doesn't change, um, then even if they get Kashmir or we reach a settlement on Kashmir, uh, it's not going to be a real peace. Any comments? No, you said it. And I would go further. There's not going to be a settlement on Kashmir. Why would the army um, allow a process to go forward that would obviate its role in politics? Right? It, it, there's an institutional argument to be made. Um, Pakistan's army gets to do what it wants to do because it says it alone is the sole institution best position to protect Pakistan's territory and ideology. And I would go even further, um, a, a, country, a, a country that conceded these points to India would not be a country the army would even deem worth holding or presiding over. So I don't even think you would even get there. So I think the best that India can hope for is some version of the status quo. And I suspect that as India continues to, to, to try to figure out what kind of extra regional player it's going to be, there will be other theaters of, of, cooper of, of competition. I mean, for example, if India wants to stay in Afghanistan, it's going to have to figure out how it protects its interests there. So India's got questions about how, it, how much it wants to prioritize this, its presence in Afghanistan. And I would also expect um, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, we've seen every place where these militant groups go, and they've gone to all these places, become theaters of potential competition, especially as the LOC hardens, right? The LOC continues to get more difficult to, to penetrate. Well, Chris has done a lot of hard work in reading through the Pakistani military's uh, literature. Somebody also needs to continuously read the literature of the various jihadi groups. Uh, only recently, Hafiz Saeed declared that he does not accept the separation of East Pakistan 
and still considers Bangladesh to be East Pakistan. So these guys live in a different world and they can drag everybody else into that world whenever they want it. Last question to Mr. Mazzetti. Oh, sorry. Okay, I'll let you come here then. So the second last and then last. Good. Uh, Chris, congratulations on the book. Uh, question, uh, several years ago when General Kayani became chief of the Army staff, you heard a lot in Washington about how this is someone who, who gets it, someone who is different, someone who understands that terrorism is the problem rather than India is the problem. Now, I think we can stipulate that was a fairly, you know, a naive view of things, but I'm wondering, I mean, it sounds like the argument you're making is it's almost impossible for someone who grew up in the system, as General Kayani did, uh, that the system could produce anything but someone who has a view of India as number one. And is it possible for the system to produce someone who actually does see things uh, besides uh, India as the number one enemy and terrorism as something, um, something secondary? All right, very briefly, um, I talk about this at length in the book. They're very clever at linking the internal threat to the external threat. So for example, especially the green books are, really do a good job of this. They'll say, we have all of these fissures, ethnic tensions, sectarian tensions, um, economic divide. But these are not active fissures until the external hand throws money on the problem or until an external organization plants their intelligence agency. So this is why, for example, you'll hear discussions about uncircumcised boys in FATA. This is why you'll hear, uh, if, you, if you get a chance to see um, Khuda is the means of Taknigia. Did I just bash? Khuda is the means Yes, 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 yes. The same concept. God hasn't left us yet. He hasn't deserted us. The, the, the show opens with uh, obviously someone who is uh, Naik Muhammad saying, Why did you give us less money? Uh, why are you giving them more money? So clearly it opens with these people are on the foreign take. So the way the Pakistan Army squares recognizing the internal security while maintaining the overall conventional threat posture, which enables them to be big and huge and a resource hog, is that it ties the, the external threat as the source of its internal problems. It's very clever, the narrative that they've constructed. Going to your point, when they retire, sometimes they get sane. But when they're in uniform and when they actually have the ability of making policy, they stick to these talking points. And I think the reason for that is, like all militaries, they promote based upon uh, organizational values. You don't get promoted, right, if you, if you, if you pop up. You just get outed. It's like whack, institutional whack-a-mole. Our military does it too. Last question. Good afternoon, Dr. Fair. My name's Todd Wiggins. Really enjoyed this presentation. Um, before I ask my question, I think we got, probably learned more about the Pakistani army due to the campaign against Osama bin Laden recently than Many of us did, just didn't know much about our relationship with the Pakistani army. So um, you did mention that in, in the question. I'd like to know what you think the long-term effect of the uh, campaign against Osama bin Laden and the eventual uh, assassination, of if it will have an effect on our relationship, as the gentleman started to allude to. And then secondly, about the cover of the book, you brought that up earlier, that there was some concern about that. Um, what does that illustrate? I, I sort of interpreted it as, a carousel, so the more things change, the more things stay the same. It's sort of a, a caricature of the of the army. So does that make us? Is that a general statement about how you feel about the operations and that they're going in circles, so to speak? What, what did you mean by that? I mean, I think that's a very fair statement. These are this is also a nuclear armed army wearing flip flops. So in other words, the army enriches itself at the expense of the nation. I mean, so I think this is a conversation for Syra Wasim 
and the various comments on civil military relations that are evident in her in her body of art, which is really go to her website. She's really amazing. Going to the other question, what struck me was actually so if ever there was a chance where the civilians were going to uh, use an opportunity to marginalize the military and reassert their control, we needed something like 1971 when the army was absolutely humiliated and the civilians could step into the breach. We had not seen a moment like that since Abbottabad, right? But in fact, what civilians did, they closed ranks around the military. Now, admittedly, it took them about 10 days to do that. So what really struck me was that the civilians were not interested in throwing the military under the bus. Technically, the air chief should have got sacked, should have gotten sacked, right? Because it was the air chief that didn't detect our helicopters coming in. No one knows the name of the air chief in Pakistan. Not even the air chief was sacked, right? So what, what that really told me is this idea of this potential for civil military change, if something like the, by the way, can we pronounce it correctly? It's not a bada 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 bada. It's abtabad. If abtabad could not galvanize the civil military change that we were hoping for, you have to ask yourself, what in the world could? And so I, I draw many more depressing conclusions about the way not only Pakistan's civilian political leadership, but its civil society, that vaunted civil society that we keep hearing about, completely closed ranks around the military to defend its equities. Well, thank you very much, Christine. I think that the more important thing here is a national discourse. And people like me have been trying to have more open debate inside Pakistan, unless we are allowed to debate. I mean, you can't say, you know, you, if you say anything about the army, you're a traitor. If you say anything about the ISI, you're a traitor. If you question the ideology of Pakistan, you're not a Pakistani. That doesn't allow Pakistan to have the discourse and the debate. So the reason why the civilians here hesitate to act against the military, even when the military has committed uh, something that is egregiously wrong, uh, obviously wrong. Even after 1971, Pakistan is the only army who, which 60,000 troops surrendered, became prisoners of war, came back, got readjusted in the military. Nobody was court-martialed. I mean, when does it happen? So, so that shows that there is this whole reluctance to actually debate an institution. On that note, of course, Chris said, you know, you might get depressed by thinking too much about it. So those of you who like getting depressed, buy the book to get depressed. <laughs> those of you who like to learn, buy the book to learn. And those of you who just think that your mind needs more information about Pakistan and its military, book is being sold at the back. The book is Fighting to the End, The Pakistan Army's Way of War by C. Christine Fair. Thank you very much you. for joining us today. And thank you all thank for coming you. here.